From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Hospitals scrambled to respond to the critical care needs during the pandemic. Now they're getting federal aid for their efforts. But where is that money going and how are the decisions made? Then, imagine a world in which personal distancing and virtual learning are the norm. That's exactly what Colorado writer James Van Pelt pictured 20 years ago. I think it's been a a fear of mine, maybe. Writers write about the things they think about. It must be something that I think about. And then how you live with it afterwards. We'll explore the parallels to life today. Then, Hollywood's version of the Space Force comes to Colorado. We picked our bases in Wild Horse, Colorado, which seemed like a great name and on the map looked like a good location. We'll talk with series creator Greg Daniels. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. The federal government is distributing $72 billion in grants to health care providers. What kinds of hospitals are getting the lion's share of that aid? The Kaiser Family Foundation, a nonprofit that analyzes health care policy and is not associated with Kaiser Permanente, dug into the numbers to see who's benefiting most. Karen Schwartz, a senior fellow at the foundation, conducted that research with statistical analyst Anthony D'Amico. Welcome to the program, Karen. Thanks for having me, Avery. What kinds of health care providers are receiving the largest portion of aid from the federal government as it's distributing it right now? Great question. So of that $72 billion that's been allocated already, about $50 billion was allocated to all providers uh, based on total revenue. And that went you know, to everything from small physicians' practices or speech therapists to large hospitals. But because that money was allocated based on total revenue, you know, it really rewarded hospitals and providers get the most revenue from private insurance, which tends to pay higher prices for the same service as compared to public insurance. So the hospitals that are getting the most money from patients are getting the most aid. Is that what I'm hearing you saying? Yes, that's how the formula worked out. And you actually found that 10% of the hospitals, based on that private insurance, they were receiving almost double per bed what some of the hospitals that received a lower share. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Those hospitals that got the most money from private insurance were getting about twice as much money per hospital bed as the hospitals that get most of their money from public payers, Medicare, and Medicaid. Now, What was this aid supposed to accomplish? Is it supposed to help them care for coronavirus patients? So Congress, uh, when they allocated this money, uh, they were fairly vague about how it could be used. They said it could be used either for expenses related to coronavirus or for lost revenue due to coronavirus. So let's get some clarity on the way the government decides how much money hospitals will get. Tell us a little bit about this formula. So, you know, the Department of Health and Human Services then had a lot of leeway in terms of how they could distribute the money, and they said they wanted to distribute it very quickly, so they chose total revenue. Uh, They say essentially because that's something, you know, every provider has uh, total revenue that they can pretty quickly measure, and so they essentially added up the total revenue from all the providers, and everyone got a proportion of the money based on Uh, how their total revenue compares to other providers. 
What can you tell us about the aid that Colorado hospitals and clinics received? Sure. So, you know, a lot of Colorado providers have gotten money from that $50 billion. You know, we're still, uh, as providers, attest that, yes, they receive the money, they want to keep it, uh, they can meet, you know, the, the terms and conditions of keeping the money, they're added to a list that HHS is posting. So, so far, more than 2,700 Colorado providers have confirmed receipt of the funds that ranges from large hospitals getting more than $10 million to uh, a speech therapist in Colorado getting $13. HHS uh, also distributed a few smaller um, buckets of funding. So they distributed $100 million to five hospitals in Colorado that qualified because they saw more than 100 coronavirus patients uh, they also allocated uh, to rural providers in Colorado, 135 rural providers got $108 million, $188 million. Now, I want to get to the heart of the issue on this aid and how it's being distributed. Why is it that some hospitals get paid more for treating patients, even though they're doing the same tests and procedures? That's a great question. So essentially, uh, private insurance negotiates with hospitals uh, for the reimbursement rate that that hospital is going to get paid. And some uh, providers, you know, in this free market have more bargaining power than other providers. They might be in an area where uh, they have a large share of the market and insurers simply feel they have to have this hospital or provider in their network. So those types of providers tend to get higher rates uh, for doing essentially the same thing as a provider in another area might get. Also, uh, Medicare and Medicaid, uh, um, the government is setting the rates, and the rates are typically about half for hospitals uh, what private insurance pays. So when a hospital gets more aid based on revenue, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're treating more patients, just that they might have more bargaining power. The formula exactly. The formula you've described, markets with large populations, high concentrations of private insurers, those are things that I associate with urban areas. What could that mean for rural areas that may only have one insurer, as is in the case in many parts of Colorado? You know, for rural providers, um, again, it's going to depend on, you know, the negotiations uh, between the providers and the hospitals in areas where the hospitals are more concentrated. They may have the upper hand in the negotiation if there's only one insurer. It may have a little more bargaining power. You know, for rural providers, especially in areas where Uh, the population may be older, they may simply see less people with private insurance because they they may see a higher share of Medicare patients, and Medicare is going to typically be reimbursing uh, at about half what private insurance pays on average. So how much does this distribution of aid actually affect the financial health of hospitals? For hospitals that are getting a lower share of aid, do you have a sense of what their margins are compared to hospitals with a higher share? It's a great question. So the hospitals uh, that got the smaller share of money, uh, they tended to have lower margins to begin with, again, because they were uh, getting reimbursed at lower rates. So often they were operating on negative margins to start with. And now uh, with coronavirus, they may both have additional expenses 
in terms of getting more protective equipment for staff and making sure their hospital is uh, safe uh, and preventing spread of coronavirus, but also they may be seeing less revenue coming in from some of the elective procedures that have been delayed during coronavirus. So a lot of trickle-down effects. And what does all this data mean for patients? What ripple effects could there be for the people that hospitals treat? You know, certainly for the folks that depend on the safety net hospitals that are treating a lot of patients with uh, public insurance, you know, to the extent that those hospitals aren't getting the resources they need, there is certainly a danger uh, that those hospitals aren't um, going to be able to provide the same level of care that they might hope to uh, with better resources. And your research shows an alternative formula for distributing funds could have allocated money more equally between hospitals that serve similar numbers of patients. And tell me about that. You know, certainly allocating to hospitals uh, by the number of beds that they had would have allocated the money more evenly. Also, the Department of Health and Human Services of that $72 billion that's been allocated they allocated $2 billion of that earmarked towards uh, safety net hospitals. Had they increased the amount of money that they were allocating towards safety net hospitals, they could have reached uh, more hospitals with more money uh, who are providing these services to the safety net. Karen, I want to thank you so much for joining me. Uh, thanks for having me. Karen Schwartz is a senior fellow at the Kaiser Family Foundation, a nonprofit that analyzes healthcare policy and is not associated with Kaiser Permanente. She and statistical analyst Anthony D'Amico published research on distribution of CARES Act funding among hospitals. After the break, a sci-fi author who grappled with what the world might look like after a pandemic decades ago. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The majority of CPR's funding comes from individual donations. Because not everyone can give, those essential donations mean CPR can be here for everyone in the state. It means that CPR reporters can continue to cover the news and emerging stories in Colorado, stories that impact all of us. And that CPR Classical and Indy 1023 can continue to fill your home with the music you love. If you are in a position to donate, it's easy to start making a difference at CPR.org. The COVID-19 pandemic sometimes seems like the plot of a science fiction novel, a virus that threatens humanity. People around the world are scared and confused. Face masks, social distancing, virtual interaction all become commonplace. Colorado author and retired high school teacher James Van Pelt imagined that world 20 years ago. That's when he wrote a short story that offers parallels and perspective about the world today. James, welcome to the program. Thank you for inviting me. James, one of your science fiction stories is called Friday After the Game. It takes place a few decades after a 99% fatal pandemic. The protagonist is a high school student and football player named Arian. Almost all society's life outside of the family is conducted virtually, even Arian's football games. He dreams of real people interaction, so he arranges a secret in-person football game with other students Can you set the scene for us? And I'd love for you to read us an excerpt. The emergency part of the pandemic in the story is long past, but all of the habits of being in a pandemic are with the the culture. They meet each other virtually. His parents are paranoid about him going out of the house. Um, 
he would like to to have this meeting with his friends, but he has to do it all in secret. He has to hide it from his teachers, which he's also attending virtually. It's a little hard to uh, conduct a conspiracy like this where students get together where the only way they can talk to each other is at school. But because it's all virtual, that means anybody can eavesdrop on them at any time. So they have to kind of be sly about how they're arranging this meeting that they're going to do. But uh, the students live close enough together, which isn't a necessity in a virtual world, but these live close enough that they can all uh, do this meeting, and so they proceed with their plan. And I think you've brought an excerpt in to read for us. Yeah, this is... um, Oh, a little bit into the story where uh, Arian, who is the main character, is talking to his parents about a concert that he wants to go to after the football game. The concert is kind of a, a ruse for him to get out of the house. He'd like to go to it too, but he needs to get out of the house so that he can meet his buddies for this football game. So this is uh, when he's talking to his parents about it. At their pregame dinner, Mom said, I don't see why he has to go to the musical review. Arian fought the urge to roll his eyes. It's not a musical review, he said. It's a retro concert. The musicians play their own instruments, and you promised. Dad said between bites. We did wild things when we were kids, dear. He has a biomask. He'll be perfectly safe. You do have your mask, don't you? Arian nodded. It's a state-of-the-art concert hall. They said all the air will be filtered and irradiated four times an hour. It's safe. The musicians play their own instruments, and it's called a retro concert. Those phrases really stuck out to me. They show that life is very different in that future world, not to mention biomasks and filtered and irradiated air. Well, it I wonder seems like how a, do you a um, natural oh, sort of extension of what we're going through now? Um, I think. Well, I wrote the story in two thousand, so it's uh, two decades old. But I've been thinking a lot about pandemics and uh, viruses. Uh, I have a novel called Summer of the Apocalypse, which is about a virus. I think it's been a a fear of mine, maybe. Writers write about the things they think about. It must be something that I think about sometimes. But I'm also a high school teacher, a recently retired high school teacher. And I think about how this would impact kids and then how you live with it afterwards. That's a really interesting question to me. How do you emerge from a catastrophe like this or a a cultural changing moment like this, like the one we're in right now. How do you emerge is something we're all certainly thinking about right now. Right after the game deals with social distancing so extreme that it's still practiced generations or decades after the pandemic ends, do you see any parallels in the social distancing we're seeing today? I think it's possible that we're going to see stuff say a decade from now, let's say that uh, by 2021, the end of 2021, that most of the social distancing rules are laid aside, that restaurants are fully open, that sporting events are being able to be held with large crowds and that sort of stuff. I think that's a little optimistic. We might get to the end of 2021 and still um, be worried about having large gatherings like that. But if we do get to that point, I still think that uh, we'll see people who wear more people who wear masks in public. That may be a habit that won't go away for some folks. There'll be more concern about people being ill at things. I, I have um, spring allergies, 
And so that means that I sneeze and sniffle at this time of the year. And I feel really self-conscious when I go to the grocery store. I'm wearing a mask. And if I cough or sneeze, I just look around to see who's looking at me and wondering if I'm a dangerous person. I'm not sure that that habit will die very quickly. James, you you were also a teacher at Fruit of Monument High School on the Western Slope before you retired in 2018. You imagine the future in your fiction, and until recently you prepared students for their futures. Have you ever pondered the parallel in your two professions? I, I gave a speech um, to the graduating class several years ago, and I talked about that because um, I taught journalism for a while. I did uh, the newspaper at the high school for 11 years, and it seemed like every year that we did the newspaper, there was always some unexpected, shattering kind of event in that year. So the Challenger blows up, or 9-11, or you you name it, there's a tsunami, there's always something in the news every year that you can't plan for, which is just devastating. So in the graduation speech, I talked about that, that the whole role of the school and the teachers at the school is to help to prepare students for the unexpected so that they can roll with a punch. And I truly believe that, especially in our culture, because things change so fast anyways. We know that a lot of the jobs that we're preparing students for right now may not exist by the time they come to their 10th reunion or their 20th reunion. We know that the economy can change, that all sorts of things are evolving. And if the kids aren't being taught to deal with change, then they're not well prepared for the future and we wouldn't be a very good school. And I thought Fruit of Monument was a pretty darn good school. And it strikes me that that's so much of what science fiction is, is preparing for the future. And we see science fiction shaping the way technology forms or different things in our futures. Kim Stanley Robinson, who's a a pretty famous science fiction writer, um, just had an article, I think it was in the New Yorker, I'm not sure, but he talked about that. He's uh, written quite a bit about ecology and change. He says the the function of science fiction is not to predict the future. And if it was, we do a terrible job of it um, because a lot of our predictions don't even come close. But it, it is to give us a mindset that the world that we live in is one that will change. And those changes will have repercussions no matter what they are. So Uh, I mean, if you go back in time, the invention of the automobile, which would have seen science fictional to somebody in the 1880s, um, shows up. But I don't think anybody would have predicted the damage that it would have to the buggy whip industry. It was a change they didn't plan on. They didn't prepare for. I'm not sure that anybody pictured this network of asphalt roads crisscrossing and connecting the country because of the invention of the horseless carriage. So every kind of change that we have, whether it's a technological one, like that, or a, a social cultural one like global warming or a pandemic is going to create a world that's very different for us to live in. And we need to be prepared for change. We just need to be flexible. We need to be adaptable. And looking back to a different catastrophic event that did bring about change, 9-11 may be the last time so many Americans have been this scared and worried. You were teaching at the time. I wonder how 9-11 informed your teaching and your writing. I know it impacted my writing um, because before 9-11, I'd written stories that were apocalyptic. And um, apocalypses have a tendency to go two routes. They either are empty world stories, 
That is, the most of the people die off like in a pandemic, but the the buildings remain. So your factories are still there, your homes are still there, and your stores are still there. And the people who are still alive have the run of all those things. It's sort of like being a, a little kid in a mall after it closes at night. You can go anywhere, and you seem to have infinite resources. And the other kind of apocalypse is the one where the world is destroyed, like um, uh, the road. That's a, a, a destroyed world, one where everything is knocked down. So... Um, before 9-11, I think that I thought of the world like a little kid with an empty mall. You know, what it would be like to be a survivor, to be able to walk into a used car lot or a car lot, a new car lot, and pick any car and just drive off with it and, you know, fix yourself dinner at the fanciest restaurant. You could do anything you wanted. But after 9-11, um, I thought much more about grief and loss. And that's what um, the impact was for me on 9-11. It's, it wasn't about surviving it was about missing the you they had all those photographs of people that had put f their pictures of their loved ones up on fences with the, you know have you seen because of the fate of a lot of the people in the building wasn't immediately known were they in there we, we don't know they haven't called they haven't come home and that sense of loss is just prevailing was just awful um I remember a cartoon that I saw somebody was drawing on the one-year anniversary. So this is a year after the event. And the cartoonist had drawn a, a picture of himself with all of these bad drafts of whatever he was going to draw to commemorate this. And on the top draft, he had just written, when will it end? And I think that that's, that's the lingering effect of something like 9-11. And that's impacted my... Uh, apocalyptic fiction. It, it's much more um, prevalent in the fiction that there's loss, that these people who were here once are gone. Um, and Friday After the Game was written before that, so I don't. There isn't a sense of loss in that. That's a. It's a story about a kid who's just thinking about here's what I want to do, and the pandemic event that creates the world he lives in. He wasn't even alive for, so it's just deep history for him. Are there ways that you might have written it differently having experienced that kind of loss or having dealt with it kind of on a nationwide I, scale? I'm not sure. I think that the parents' reaction might have been different. The whole point of that story was about the need for connection. And that part stays with us. I think that that's what's happening now. Um, people go and sort of stir-crazy in their homes. They really would like to go to a restaurant again. Uh, although they're nervous about it. I know that I'm nervous about it. When the state opens us up for um, being able to go to restaurants, even if the restaurants are limiting the number of people in the restaurant, I think I'm going to wait for a while and see is there a rebound on infections. Um, I'm in the endangered group now. I'm 65. Every single list says if you're 65 or older, I'm thinking, man, why couldn't my birthday be in October or something? But nope, I turned 65. Former high school teacher and author James Van Pelt from Fruta, Colorado, when we come back, how he developed the idea of virtual learning, and his thoughts on how the pandemic we're in may have lingering effects on children. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. For some, the pandemic has made parenting even harder. Our son wanted to meet a friend of his to ride bikes. And I found myself getting him gloves and getting him a mask. And after he left, I just cried. 
I just made him afraid of spending time with his best friend since kindergarten. Last week, Colorado Matters dedicated an entire episode to parenting in the pandemic. Get Colorado Matters on demand wherever you get your podcasts and at CPR.org slash Colorado Matters. Let's get back to my conversation with science fiction writer and former high school teacher James Van Pelt, who lives in Fruta. 20 years ago, he wrote a short story that imagined life after a pandemic. It's a story of a high school student who wants to play a real game of football in an age of virtual learning and face masks. You predicted virtual classrooms in Friday after the game. Now we have those. Almost all schools are teaching virtually. There's no in-person learning. Was it a lucky guess that you were able to predict that? Or what other things do you think about when you're envisioning the future outcome of a pandemic? I think the virtual classroom was the result of a different line of thinking, not pandemics, but um, the efficiencies that could be afforded by digitally connecting with students and the inefficiencies of our current system, which is hugely expensive if you think about it. We have to build um, giant structures to house hundreds or thousands in some cases of students. We have everybody driving to get there, so it has a big carbon footprint. There's desks and janitors and cafeterias and all these kind of things that are that go into it. I just think economic necessity would eventually push us to try to not have to do that big superstructure to have classes in. Also, um, I, when I was writing the story, the whole no child left behind thing was in full swing, which is still in full swing. And it means that there was so much emphasis on we need to be able to test and measure. And test and measuring is mostly a records keeping and electronic thing. And virtual learning lends itself really well to a test and measure kind of society because everything is preserved digitally. So if you have uh, tests that you give kids, you're giving them to them online, it's pretty easy to build individual profiles for a kid's progress. Um, there's a lot of discussion about how students should be educated. It's out of that that I got into the virtual classroom um, at that point in that story, although the pandemic gave us a, a reason to do it, a really solid reason to do it, and created the fear in the parents of the kids getting together. And the other virtual way we find ourselves living, I think many of us find ourselves on social media more. There's information about the pandemic, some of it reliable, a lot of it distorted. And then there's also the way that we can portray ourselves differently on social media, and that's really how we're consuming so much of our social interaction now. Tell me a little bit about how social media plays out in your science fiction. In this story, in Friday After the Game, because the kids are meeting at a virtual school, they have avatars of themselves. So... They wear uh, goggles of a kind that allows them to see this classroom that would look like a traditional classroom, and they get to see each other. But because it's digital, the urge, the temptation to tweak how you look in that virtual world is really strong in these kids. So they make themselves taller or stronger looking or you know less flawed. Um, they can present themselves the way they'd like. And that's one of the the challenges in the virtual world, if you meet somebody virtually, you're getting to see uh, an ideal representation of them, which is already a problem on like dating apps and stuff where people are posting pictures of themselves that don't look very much like themselves or not like themselves at all. So um, meeting a person who you only know now from a virtual conversation just online is 
is fraught, I think. It's kind of uh, disturbing sometimes to meet somebody who you have a long online relationship with for the first time, which happens to me fairly often because I go to um, conventions, writing conventions, and I'll have uh, emails and texts and sometimes um, like Skype calls with somebody. And I have a pretty good relationship with them, but it's all remote relationship. And it's very different to be sitting across the table from somebody who you've only interacted with through this electronic media. It's kind of nerve-wracking. I imagine there may be more of that depending on how long this social distancing keeps up. Uh, I wonder if you'd have any guesses about other just things from this pandemic that we might see as it plays out. Well, I there's a part of me that thinks it's possible that in a couple of years or four years or something, I don't know exactly what the window is, is that this will be one of those uh, blips in our history, which becomes a trivia question at kids' high school reunions, right? Their 10th year, their 20th year, and said, yeah, yeah, remember, we didn't have to go to class kind of stuff. Um, and I, I, I hope that that would actually be it. I, I wish that this would be a blip, but I think it'll be a little bit stronger than that. Um, I think that there's going to be a sense from this year's seniors, if nobody else, that this year has been stolen from them. They might not think it's that big a deal now, but to to not be able to walk through their graduation, to not go to prom, to not get their yearbooks signed, um, to not be able to make the sort of goodbyes that high schoolers can make to each other in their senior year when they know there's a chance that these kids they've been going to class with for years will be going different directions and they may never see them again. They didn't get that chance. Uh, I know for our, our county, for Mesa County, um, spring break came and they decided during spring break that they weren't going back to class. So nobody had a chance to, to say to the people who'd been so important to them at a time in their lives when they actually are retrospective enough to make that connection, goodbye and thank you and I love you and we'll write or whatever it is that they do. My wife teaches first grade. And they did a parade. They All the teachers decorated their cars with balloons and signs and then drove through the neighborhood of where their kids come from. And the kids came out on the porches and their, and their front lawns and waved at the teachers. And the teachers waved back and honked and stuff. And she said it was way more emotional than she thought it would be because she had the same deal. She went on spring break and all of a sudden all these kids, these first graders, who she'd spent this very important part of their lives with them, watching them develop, helping them develop, doing all these kind of things, it was just cut off, just done. And there's no wrap-up for this year either, not a face-to-face one, no end-of-the-year activities, no field days, no party at the end, no gifts that they're making for their parents to to show the year. All that's gone. And I think that there's a possibility that that will come back Uh, That'll be with this generation of kids, this class of kids at least, for the rest of their lives. That that won't Mm. change. I don't think it's potentially catastrophic in the same way. It's different than 9-11. It's different than the Kennedy assassination or, you know, whatever thing that shaped a generation. But I think it's possible it will shape it. And I think that's an interesting idea that there is maybe a sense of loss that there isn't the space to process entirely right now in the midst of a pandemic, but there might be time to process later. Yeah. What are the other lessons that you hope can be learned or takeaways from this pandemic? Well, the big one is, this is the first time I've ever seen anything like this. I'm 65 years old. I've never seen um, our entire country under siege like this at the same time. 
I mean, this is different from the recession, you know, where the housing market kind of collapsed. Everything pretty much went on the same. There, there were people who had to recover losses in the stock market, and some people lost jobs, and some people lost homes. But that was different than this. This is a point where I see all of America in some way or another pulling in the same direction, you know, except for protesters on capital front lawns in some parts of the country, which are pretty small groups. So it's just everybody else who is wearing a mask to a store because they're trying to protect their neighbors, now, which I think is a really cool thing about the masks. You're not protecting yourself with a cloth mask. You're protecting others from you in case you're sick. That's a really selfless and cool thing to do. And I, I feel kind of good about it when I go to a public place now and I see people wearing masks because that's the decision they made. They said, I'm going to try to protect you by wearing a mask, which is weird. The first time I went into a supermarket, I felt like I was either getting ready to rob it or <laughs> I don't know what, it just felt odd to put on a mask the first time I went in. But now it's second nature. I have one in my car. I have one in the house. I have, you know, I, w- I want to be able to do that. Um, to help people. But I think the the big change will be we have other things coming up as a society that's going to require us to pull together in the same way. And I think that this shows us that we can do it. And I think the big one probably is uh, global warming. It doesn't, it's not coming upon us in the same way, not as quickly, not as um, obviously frightening the way COVID-19 has come. But Every scientist, anybody you listen to tells us that we're going to need to make some changes as a culture or we're going to do damage to the planet we live on that will make it impossible for all the almost 8 billion people that are on the planet today to continue living on it. I think that's a good thing, that we see that we can make changes, that we can be different. That's what COVID-19 has taught us. James, before we go, will you please read us a passage in Friday After the Game that sends a message of hope? Yes. Um, at the end of the story, my characters did get together to play their football game. It turned out quite differently than they thought it would. The boys uh, were able to play the game, but one of the girls in the class who had a relationship with Arian uh, spent a long time driving to get to the game, and it's the first time he's got to see her in person, and they like each other very much um, online, and you know, virtually, but they'd never met. And both of them look a little bit different than they appeared in their avatars in the virtual world. Um, as I told you, it'd be a little awkward to meet. But um, Arian is watching his friends um, play catch, and he's standing next to the girl. Her name is Margot, and this is how the story ends. After a while, Arian took a shaky breath, then reached out slowly, blindly from his side, until he touched her hand. They touched. She nestled her fingers between his. He could feel her palms' silky texture, the fine strength in her hand and wrist. The rain had turned into a mist, and just before the boys quit throwing to each other to return to the cars, Arian, his heart careening in his chest, squeezed her hand. She squeezed back. That's beautiful. James, thank you so much for sharing your story and your perspective. Well, thank you for asking. I I hope all of my optimistic thoughts come true and none of the pessimistic ones do. 
Science fiction writer and retired high school teacher James Van Pelt from Fruta, Colorado, he wrote his short story Friday after the game about high schoolers playing a real football game in a world of virtual learning and face masks 20 years ago. While James Van Pelt's story may be a work of fiction, for student-athletes graduating high school this month, missing out on their final year in sports has been tough. But CPR's Vic Vela found they're trying to look for the positives. Bruins have possession, 23 and a half on the clock. We're all tied up as Van Geitenbeek chases it down. For the last few years, Cherry Creek High School basketball star Jana Van Geitenbeek dazzled spectators with her skills on the court including a year ago this spring, when, as a junior, she led the Bruins to a state title with this shot. Van Geitenbeek steps through and gets the two. Fast forward to this year in March. The Bruins were breezing through the state playoffs and knocking on the door of back-to-back state titles. But then... We had just won the Final Four, and then the day after, we were supposed to play in the championship, and we got the call. That call was the season being canceled due to the COVID-19 pandemic. It was super devastating. We were all just so sad. We were crying. Championship dreams for Kent Denver lacrosse player Max Hewitt were also crushed by an invisible enemy. Last year, his Sun Devils lost a heartbreaker in the state championship, and this season was canceled the day it was set to start. And it was kind of like one of those deals where um, they had like there's a bunch of dates where it could start up again, but I think everyone kind of knew it wasn't going to happen. I think this year coming into this year, we had a lot of experience, a lot of really good seniors, and um, it was just hard not to be able to play with like my friends one more time. Canceling sports was not a fun decision for Rhonda Blanford Green, the commissioner of the Colorado High School Activities Association. My heart hurt to have to do that, and and you know it's the right decision, you know it's the only decision. But it still was a somber and sad day for our office that there wasn't going to be a culminating event. The emotional impact of canceling spring sports has not only been tough on the students, but also on the communities where games are played. In some parts of Colorado, a Friday night game is the biggest show in town. Adam Bright is an assistant JASA commissioner. In a lot of places... The high school is the meeting point of the community. It's the the shining light of the community. It's what everybody's proud of is what their their high school is able to accomplish, whether that's on the field or the the type of graduates they're putting out and where they're going off to college or the careers they're having. And so the high school really becomes the, the centerpiece of a community. And it isn't just the emotional toll. The economic impact of the cancellations are also deeply felt. Blanford Green says when Chassa pulled the plug on basketball tournaments in places like Denver and Greeley, the fallout had a trickle-down effect. Refunding ticket sales, hotels in those communities losing money because room reservations are canceled, empty restaurants near the arenas, and referees couldn't work for income they were counting on. Blanford Green. It's just a bigger picture of an event being canceled, but all the the collateral damage that happens around it. For Chassa officials, the focus now turns toward the fall and what high school sports might look like then. Blanford Green says they're working on different scenarios, and she said it would be premature to talk about any plans in the works. Officials will meet early next month to at least talk about reopening sports again. But whatever happens, the high school sports experience may look and feel a lot different when they resume. Based on 
our everyday life right now, right? It would be naive to think that we could just come back to business as usual in August. And as much as people don't want to hear this, we will not sacrifice the well-being and safety of students, officials, fans for a uh, an athletic event or an activity. While Chasa makes plans for next semester, schools are paying tribute to senior athletes who didn't have a chance to play this year. Every Friday since sports were canceled in March, schools around the state have been lighting up their football fields and gymnasiums as part of a tribute to students called Be the Light. Here's Assistant Commissioner Adam Bright again. We've received numerous messages from people that are driving home late from being at the hospital all day and seeing the lights on at the school as they pull into their, their neighborhood. And it reminds them that there's better days ahead and that we're all going to get through this and we'll be back on those field playing games again soon. Seniors like Jana Van Geitenbeek are staying positive and keeping perspective. My disappointment doesn't compare to everything else that was happening in the world. Like I if I had known how crazy this was going to be and how detrimental it was going to be to everybody, the whole world, then I would have spent less time worried about it, being selfish, because if you put it in perspective, it's really nothing compared to people dying or losing people they love. Van Geitenbeek is headed to Stanford to play basketball, and Max Hewitt will soon play lacrosse at Navy. On three, one, two, three. Yeah! It begins. Then there's Jaden Vaz, a senior at Smoky Hill High School. He was really excited to finally play varsity baseball this year. But of course, the season was canceled. Instead of getting depressed, Jaden made an incredible salute to the class of 2020 in a video that's gotten a lot of attention. It was recently featured on Graduate Together, a nationally televised salute to seniors that former President Obama was a part of. The word to describe uh, class of 2020 would be resilient. Resilience. Resilient. Iconic. Pride. Jaden went to a ton of school events last year and got a bunch of footage from sporting events for his video. But the video takes a solemn turn when coronavirus hits. And instead of raucous crowds going nuts at basketball games, Vaz features voices of Smoky Hill seniors talking about their dreams over video chat. The message I'd like to give to the class of 2020, keep that vision and go be great. The class of 2020 is unstoppable. We're the first graduating class of high school to deal with this that's alive today. So I think it's super important to set the standard for what it looks like to be strong during tough times for other people in the future. Vaz will study video production at Metropolitan State University of Denver next semester. Congrats to him and to all senior student-athletes. I'm Vic Vela, CPR News. In 2018, it became the first new U.S. military branch since 1946. And shortly after, President Trump announced that it would be based in Colorado Springs for the next several years. That's right, I'm talking about Space Force, and it's now the subject of a new TV show. The president is creating a new branch in the United States military. Space Force. (laughs) 
which Mark will run. I don't, hmm. <laughs> it has always been my dream to start something from the ground up. But space is hard. May I suggest that that become the new Space Force motto? Netflix's Space Force, starring Steve Carell, premieres tomorrow on the streaming service. The sitcom was co-created by Carell and writer Greg Daniels, the same guys behind NBC's smash hit The Office. Daniels recently called up producer Alexander McMahon to talk Space Force. The main reason Greg Daniels wanted to make Space Force? Well, you know, my inspiration was really to work with Steve Carell again. And we had been looking for a project to do. And then he went in to have a meeting at Netflix And so Steve called me and said, I've got two words for you, Space Force. And I was like, yeah, it sounds awesome. I'm in. Daniel says it was great to work together again because he knows Carell can handle whatever he throws his way. I love to write for a character that he plays because he's got this marvelous ability to play different levels at the same time. You know, like you can see on his face what he's trying to accomplish, what he's scared he's not going to accomplish, all the frustrations on the way to get there, and and all of them are visible at the same time. So you can write these very complex comedy scenes, and he's he can you know easily handle them. So he and Carell sat down and started thinking about how to write a funny show about the newest addition to the U.S. military. You know, we immediately started picturing what it would be like for a military guy to be given this incredibly implausible and audacious goal of boots on the moon by 2024 and just how much of a he would be thrown by a loop and kind of outside of his comfort zone. Carell plays Mark R. Nayard, a military general who's reassigned to head up Space Force, which in the show is not based in Colorado Springs, but Wild Horse, Colorado. Now, I'm going to be honest, I had to look this one up. It's a tiny village in Cheyenne County on the Eastern Plains, right near Kit Carson. Yeah, well, it's funny. We didn't know where Space Force was going to be based, but we picked our bases in Wild Horse, Colorado, which seemed like a great name and on the map looked like a good location. You know, we have the notion that there's a secret old NORAD base that they took over. So, I mean, it's not it's not accurate. You know, it's like we've started from the same announcement of Space Force, but we've sort of built an imaginary parallel universe version of what's actually happening. All right. I had to ask the big question. Is Space Force similar to that other collaboration from Daniels and Carell? You know, the one in an office with a boss named Michael. Michael is not a good leader and doesn't really have a core set of values to steer him. He just kind of blows in the wind. A very funny character, but this one is, is the humor is coming from a different place. It's more like, you know, he's, he's a very accomplished family man with a code and a, you know, a lot of ability to, to command other people and lead people. Uh, and his flaws are more, inflexibility and his need to suddenly be creative and extremely science literate in this new job. Quarantine has not slowed Daniels down much. He's still been able to work on Space Force and his other current show on Amazon, Upload. Yeah, I mean, I've been lucky enough to be able to work on both shows from home. And I have Zoom meetings with 
both sets of writers every day. And, you know, it's not as good as being together, but we're, we're getting stuff accomplished. Space Force, created by funny men Greg Daniels and Steve Carell, premieres on Netflix tomorrow. I'm Alexandra McMahon, CPR News. We'll see if Steve Carell's character is still standing after taking over Space Force. Finally today, new music featuring Wesley Schultz. He's the lead singer of the Lumineers, who hail from Denver. Indie rock band Cold War Kids included Schultz and their latest single released earlier this month. Walked a thousand miles to this promised land But little did we know we were already song is called One by One. It was inspired by the stories of child migrants separated from their families at the border, but Cold War Kids frontman Nathan Willett says the lyrics have taken on new meaning during the pandemic, as one by one each of us makes choices to help the greater good. The hardest thing to do is make a joyful sound One by one One by One, a new single from Cold War Kids featuring Colorado musician Wesley Schultz of the Lumineers. That's it for Colorado Matters today. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.